No, good morning. We, um, we're excited about this, um, this series that we are continuing, Be Transformed. And today, uh, we are going to continue in the book of Romans, chapter 13. Uh, for those of you who didn't bring your Bible, there are Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. Uh, in the worship guide, study guide, there is a page number that you can turn to and go uh, to that page number to follow along with us. So we're in Romans chapter 13, and we'll be reading verses 8 through 14 and, and talking about that passage today. Um, and this passage is, is a neat passage because it brings our attention back to our responsibility uh, for loving others uh, and the way that we as Christians should live. And uh, just last week we looked at um, how our, what, what our responsibility is in response to our governing authorities. And we hope that throughout small groups, uh, y'all had some great discussion about that subject. I had a few people defriend me on Facebook because of uh, politics, so maybe they didn't go to small group, but I hope the rest of you did. I hope the rest of you didn't enjoy that. No, I'm kidding. That's not true. But anyway, um, it's, it, it was a response to our governing authorities, and now we're turning our attention, Paul is turning his attention back to our response in relationship with others. And so uh, here in chapter 13, we're going to go back and talk about something that Paul introduced in, in chapter 12, verse 9, which was love, loving others, uh, having a genuine love, a love without hypocrisy. And so we're going to continue to do that here. And so let's just go ahead and open our Bibles. Let's go ahead and jump in. Let's start reading and let's see what Paul has to say about uh, our responsibility or about our response uh, for loving others. And he says this in verse 8. And this is coming off of verse 7. He has just said, pay to, to everyone that is owed. Go ahead and pay to them. Uh, verse 7, he says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes is owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Verse 8. Let's pick, let's pick up there. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the, lo for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Let me just, I'm going to pause right there because... That word except, uh, the, the Greek word a, uh, the term there used in this actual um, passage here, in other times when it's used in Scripture, it's not used as a comparison. And as we're reading this passage, it seems as though Paul is saying, owe no one anything, but the, or uh, except the only thing is love. In other words, owe no one anything, just owe them love. That's the only thing you owe them. But... As you study that word and you see that in the other areas of Scripture where that actual term is being used, this specific term, it's not of comparison, it's of contrast. So that would change the way it reads. And I'm going to propose to you that we would read it this way. Owe no one anything but to love each other. Owe no one anything but to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That changes the meaning there a little bit. Uh, he's talking about what we owe people, and, he's, and then he gets to love, and the contrast there is that the love we are to show each other is not out of obligation, responsibility, or out of debt. It changes. And so let's go ahead and keep reading. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. So when we look at that and we see that in light of 
that contrast, instead of a comparison, we say the one thing that we don't know any, that we don't, shouldn't owe anyone, or the one thing that we should do without, without obligation or, or because we're in debt is love. So what happens to that love and what happens to the love that we are supposed to give to others is that love becomes free. That love becomes without obligation, without responsibility. And now it changes the way that we think about love. And here's what happens. So my first point is this, is when I owe people nothing, I am free to love others. And I will point out that the first statement that Paul made in this passage is about debt. And, uh, and the, Bible knowledge com- the Bible knowledge commentary says this about it. He says, uh, this is not a direct prohibition, a prohibition against proper credit. It's an underscoring of a Christian's obligation to express divine love in all uh, interpersonal relationships. So let's do something really quick. Let's just point out the obvious. He said it in verse 7. Uh, we should pay our debts. We should be responsible uh, with our finances. We should, if we took a loan, um, be responsible with paying it back and paying it back on time. Uh, we do have a responsibility to that. We should do that. But again, I argue that what Paul is saying here about love is that we should love without any responsibility to love, without obligation. See, when we talk about love, we look at God as the greatest example of that love, right? We say, well, God is the example of love. Love emanates from God. We know that God is love because we've seen it in his scripture. We've experienced in our lives through, uh, through our salvation. We've seen what God has done for us. And the thing is, is when we look at God in view of this principle, we see that God didn't owe humanity anything. God didn't love us because he had to. God loved us because he chose to, because he wanted to. Think of it in a, in a marriage. You, uh, how many of you wives would like your husband to only fulfill your needs as a wife because of his responsibility of being wedded to you? Or how many of you would want him to do it because he loves you? There's a difference. See, I can do right in my marriage for the wrong reason. And that reason is, is I sign on the dotted line. I'm in a contract. I, I have to love her because she's my wife. Or I can do it the right way in saying I love her because I chose to love her. Though she might not always um, deserve this love, I choose to love her. Though he might not always deserve the love, you choose to love him, wife. So it becomes this love that, that is free. It's free of debt. It's free of obligation. It's free of responsibility. And because we've experienced this love from God, we are then free to reciprocate that love in our relationship with others. And that's what Paul is calling us to. One thing I do want to point out what this passage is not saying, because I hear this a lot, this passage is not saying that I, you know what? He's saying uh, if, if, if um, you know, the commandment is to love my neighbor as you would love yourself. Well, the commandment is not a challenge to love yourself more in order to love others. Do you understand that? It's never about how much you love yourself. 
It's about loving others. See, God calls us to live selfless. He calls us to live in a selfless manner. And so when we first look at this passage and we say, well, he's challenging us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, uh, we quickly go to, well, then I need to find out how to love myself first before I can love someone else. But uh, that's not what the passage is saying. And that's not the challenge that Paul is giving us. He's giving us a challenge to love someone without obligation and responsibility. See, I, I, I remember in my life, the very first time that I experienced this love, this type of love, was, was, when, I was when I was a kid. When I grew up to be a teenager, I, uh, I had a good friend of mine in, 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 in church, and we grew up together through church. And so we were best friends from the moment that we were kids to even now. Um, I, had the privileges, uh, I had the privilege last year of, of marrying him and his wife, and that was just it was an amazing experience. But we're still great friends now. But as we were growing up, I remember going to church and being uh, the only, sometimes the only reason I went to church was because I was hoping that they would invite me over to their house. They lived out, as what we city folk would say, they, li they lived out in the country. It was fun going out to the country. There wasn't a lot of streets and a lot of barriers. We could just run and play and have a good time. And so I would go eagerly hoping that they would invite me to come to their house, and they would. They, uh, they would do that often. And, and as, I, uh, as I got older, my friend said, well, the reason my mom likes to invite you over is because she says you always like her cooking and you eat her food. <laughs> For those of you that know me today, I am the exact same way. If you want to invite me over, trust me, I'll finish the food. But no questions asked. If you're having a hard time with anyone at home finishing the food, just give me a call. I'll come over. I'll sit down. Have a great conversation in the midst of a great meal. And so he said, that's why my mom liked to invite you over all the time, because she said you love her cooking. She loves that you love her cooking. I guess it was because I would sit down, and Eddie says, Eddie says, man, you're the only person I know that makes noise when you eat. If I taste something good, I say, mmm, that's, wow. That's good. I enjoy food. So, um, you know, that's what he said, but I, I don't know what the true reason is. I, I don't know why they opened their house the way they did to a young man like me. I didn't understand it then. And as I grew older, as, as, I, as I was getting into my teenage years, as I be, became a, a teenager, an adolescent, a teenager, a, a young man, um, I, I would say that in, in my life, my, my home life started to, to fall apart, started to deteriorate. Things started getting tough. But this family always opened their house as a place of refuge. Not only were they kind, but they were a great example of Christianity. I looked up to them. I thought that they were great people, not because of them opening their house to me and the great food that the mom would cook, but because of the example that they showed in their relationship, in their family of God's love and, and, and what, you know, I looked up to them as what a Christian marriage looked like and, and I thought highly of them because of the example they were. So as things began to deteriorate in my life, th this family, without owing me anything, became a place, their house became a place of refuge. Their ears 
were always open to, to hear me out without judging me. They were willing to speak truth into my life, but did so in a very kind way. And it was the first time that I ever experienced this type of love because I wasn't their son, yet they treated me like a son. I wasn't they're part of their family, but they always included me in their family. And in a time when I felt excluded from mine, that was very important for me as a young man. It was very important for me as a teenager. But to see it done the right way was even more important. It was a learning experience. It was something that I drew from, that, that I learned from. And so I was, as I was looking at this passage, I was thinking to myself, when was the first time that I experienced this type of, of love? And I would say it was them. Not owing me a thing, not out of any responsibility, but just choosing to love a young boy, a teenager, and a young man because they just chose to love him. They weren't obligated to, but they did. And that love had an impact in my life. It had an impact when I grew up. It has an impact on me today. When I sit and I talk to my wife about family dynamics, a lot of times I bring them up because that's the family dynamic, the godly family dynamic that I remember when I was a teenager. And so they impacted my life because they were able to love without being obligated to love. They were able to love freely as God has loved us. And that changed a young man's life. How are you loving others? Is your love for others something that you do out of obligation? Is your love for others something that you do because you know you have to? Or is it something you do because you want to? How do you treat others? What life are you impacting with the example of God's love? See, and the thing is that there are, there's two types of, of loves. There's two ways of loving. And the first one, it is out of obligation. And for us Christian, Christians, it becomes a very religious love where the only reason we treat people a certain way is because we have to, because the law says we are supposed to. And when someone asks you, why, why are you being kind to them? Well, well, Scripture tells me to. And I get that, but if we're doing everything out of obligation and responsibility, then it's not a genuine love. And so we see that with the Pharisees. We see the Pharisees endeavoring to fulfill the law with their works. What they couldn't understand is the one thing they were lacking was love. Because everything was about the outcome. And when we love freely, the outcome just is a byproduct of what we're doing. So for them, the way they treated people, the way they interacted with people, the way that they uh, even spoke up about the word of God was all about the obligation, was all about the end result. But for us, it shouldn't be about that. For us, it should be about 
the love that we've already experienced. So that's one type of love, the religious love. The second type is the person who loves because they've experienced true love. And scripture talks about it, but I, I think that once we truly understand what God did through his son Jesus and the fact that he gave up his son without having to, not being obligated to, but just because he's choosing to be in, in a relationship with us, we experience true love. The person uh, then fulfills the law naturally through this genuine love for others. In Romans 5.5, 5, Paul talks about the love being poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so in our Christian lives, in, in, in our walk with Christ, we should allow the Spirit of God to love others through us being the driving force in how to treat others and how to love others and how to be in these interpersonal relationships. Because someone might say, well, that's too hard. I can't do that. You're right. But when the Spirit of God is in us, then it becomes a little easier to live that out because we're allowing the Holy Spirit to empower us to do that. So it's not a religious obligation. It's an experiential outcome of the gospel in our lives. That's what this true love is. An understanding and an experiential outcome of the gospel in our lives. So my question goes back and are you a person that's loving only to fulfill the law? Or are you a person loving because the love of God is rooted in you and you can't help but reciprocate that? That's what I want to be. And I'll be honest with you, church, I'm not always that. I'm not. But I endeavor to be. I endeavor to allow the Spirit of God to lead me in that way. And now that I've seen it clearly, I do want to live that way. So are you a, a person that loves freely or out of obligation? So my second point is this, is I fulfill the purpose of the law when I love others freely. You know, so he, he laid out some of the things of the law and you say, well, then how do we love the way Paul talks about loving here? here here's what's interesting is Paul lays out the last five of the commandments. He lays out murder, adultery, theft, false witness, covetedness. Um, and so it seems here that, and he says this here at the end of that passage, that by doing no harm to our neighbor, we fulfill the law. We fulfill the law. You know, why is that? I mean, let's just think about these, these um, commandments that he gave. See, murder robs people from their life. It robs them of their life. Adultery robs them of their home and honor. Theft robs them of their property. False witness of their good name. And covetousness robs society of the ideals of simplicity and contentment. So when we live this way, we're living in a very selfish way. When those things are being practiced, we're being very selfish. So Paul is saying here, when you, don't, when you do no harm to people, love harms no one, is what he's saying. So a religious obligatory love is selfish. 
And a lot of times what can happen when we have a selfish love is we can become very manipulative. We want to manipulate people. We want to manipulate circumstances for our favor, for our outcome. So the only reason we do things and the only reason we, we tie ourselves to people is, is for our benefit. You only establish that relationship to gain, to have some political gain. You only uh, wanted to have that relationship to have uh, possessional gain. You only wanted that relationship because you want exactly what they have and you want to figure out how they got it. But that's not, it's not true love. It's not the free love. That's not the love that we're talking about. It's the complete opposite. Excuse me. So we love freely. Let's keep reading here. Let's go to verse, verse 11. Let's read that second half again. He says, besides this, you know the time, you know that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And so what, what, what happens now is now Paul is turning from the way that Christians should live, and it seems as though he's saying, and this is one, a reason why we should live this way. This is a reason why we should love with genuine love, as he, as he spoke about in chapter 12, verse 9. This is why we should live uh, in light of, 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 of our government, and we should live in a certain way in light of our government. This is why we should express this love in lives, in, in our interpersonal in relationship with others and in our lives, is because... Um, what does he say there? He says that the hour has come for you to awake from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. My third point is this, as my salvation nears, I should live as though that day has already dawned. As my salvation nears, I should live as though that day has already dawned. And so as I was looking at this passage, I, I began thinking about it, and I, I was looking at it, and, and an example that came to my mind, and I don't know if you guys have seen this movie, but it's The Diary of a Wimpy Kid. I watched that movie with my kids. We love to watch it as a family. And, uh, and, and they like watching, I think, the first two, or the, I think it's the first two movies that they really like. But I, and, and so the second one is the one that comes with this example. The brothers are really having a hard time existing with, with each other, right? The, the older and the middle, and they're just having a hard time. They're fighting, they're arguing, and the family was about to go on a vacation, and the mom says, well, since you guys can't get along, I think this is a gist, you guys are staying home while we go uh, on, on a weekend vacation, a weekend getaway. So they stayed home in order to try to figure things out. Uh, but the older brother gets a great idea. And some of you may have gone through this as you were growing up and living at home, but he gets a great idea, and that idea is mom and dad are gone, so... Let's throw a party. I'm throwing a party. So he, he sends out a text message, and, and, and you see there how networking works. He sent out one text message to about four people, and, uh, and that, those uh, text messages went out to about 200 people, and now his house is flooded with people from the school. And, uh, oh, yeah, before that, he still wasn't getting along with his younger brother, so he locked him up in the basement. So the younger brother's in the basement while they're having a party upstairs. And so uh, they're, they're, they're partying, they're having a good time. Um, certain things happen that makes the younger brother come back up from the attic, I mean from the basement, and now he's, he's partying with the older brother. They're having a great time. Uh, they're laughing, they're, they're dancing, they're taking pictures. Uh, they are just making a mess of their mother's home. 
Why? Because they thought that mom wasn't coming home for two days. So the next scene is they're waking up in the morning. They're woken up by a phone call. The phone call goes to the, uh, to the, to the recorder, the voice message, because they didn't get to it. And mom is on the line saying, hey, boys, we just decided to come home already. We'll be there in two hours. So what happens? For those of you who did these parties, what would you do? I want to know, because I never participated in those sinful ways. I just want to know, what did y'all do when y'all found out mom and dad were coming home? Come on, how could you? So they just scramble. They are frantic. They're running all over the place. They're putting things in place. They're trying to clean the carpet. They're trying to clean the ceiling. They're washing all the dishes. Their couches were thrown outside. They had to go get the couches and put them inside. And they're just running and scrambling and scrambling. And finally, they get it all done. And they just relax. So when mom and dad get home, it seems as though the house is in order. It's in order. And so this reminds me of, 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 of those times, I mean, of that movie, not those times, because again, I didn't participate in those things. <laughs> it reminds me of, of, that, of, of that movie, of that scene, and the many conversations I've had with people that I've counseled about these issues. Um, but... It reminds me of that. And why? Is, is because you know, you, mom and dad are on their way home. Oh my gosh, we got to leave everything perfect. We got to leave everything neat. Even if you didn't throw a party, when you find out mom and dad are coming home for whatever reason, the natural instinct is you got to clean. You got to make sure everything is right. Is the vase in the perfect place? Did you use that pot? Let's clean it out. Let's put, you know, it, it's, it's, it's going throughout the entire house and making sure everything is where mom left it. Because dad doesn't care. Dad doesn't care. Dad goes, hey boys, what are y'all doing? Hey. You know, and mom is... Mom cares about her dishes. She cares about her, uh, what would you call them, decor. She cares about them. So that's what we're worried about. But, but you, you're just frantic. You're trying to be sure that the house is in order. And what Paul is saying here, and this, 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 this reference to being asleep, to awake from your, from your slumber, is, it's, it's, it's a statement that says, don't forget about God. Slumber relates or slumber alludes to a forgetfulness about God. That Christ is returning, our salvation is coming near. There is a, a, a completion of our salvation that's coming near to us every single day we live. Paul wasn't making a mistake. He wasn't trying to put a date in here. He wasn't trying to say that he knew that the return of Christ, the second coming, was imminent in his time. That's not what he was saying. What he was saying was every day that you live, you get that much closer to the completion of your salvation. And just as like we're looking forward to mom and dad coming home and getting everything in order and putting everything in its place, Paul is saying we as Christians should take this time and put on our clothes. Not only are we to awake, not only are we to awake and get ready, but we are to awake, get ready, put on our clothes, and be the light. And he talks about this time, and he says the night is far gone and now the day is at hand, right? The, 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 the new day is at hand. The new day is, is dawning. The night being um, the rule of sin. The new day beginning with, with the, 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 the first coming of Christ, with his life, his death, burial, and resurrection, with his ascension to be uh, uh, seated at the right hand of God. And the new day has already begun, so why are we still asleep? It's time to wake up. We should no longer be forgetful about who our God is and about what God has done for us. 
and we should put on our armor of light and we should live in a way that says it's already day. That's what Paul is saying. Let's read in verse 12. He says, the night is what? It's far gone. Why would he be saying that? Again, he's alluding to the fact that Christ has already come. He already defeated death. He already defeated sin. His death, burial, and resurrection, that already took place. His ascension, that already took place. The day is beginning. The day began then. We are living at the beginning of that day. Verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's get dressed. Get dressed with that armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, to gratify its desires. So we know the time. We know what's happening. And let me make something clear before I move forward. We're talking about the completion of our salvation. We know that positionally we've been justified by Christ and we have the security of our salvation believer. But we are awaiting the completing process or the completed process on that day when we receive our glorified body and we are completely remade by God. And that's what he's alluding to here. He's not talking about salvation uh, in the sense of our position. He's talking about the completeness of our salvation, and he makes reference to that in other places. But again, this is the tension of, the, of, of now already, of Christ's first coming and the not yet of the second coming. And so he's, he gets here and he talks about living in a, in a certain way, and he, he mentions a few vices, and he talks about orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, uh, dissension and jealousy. And, and let's just take a look at those really quick and see how those uh, how do those relate to what he was talking about in, from verses 8 through, through 10 and talking about loving others? Uh, so orgies and drunkenness is what? It's, it's a lack of what? Self-control. That's what he's talking about. He's saying don't, don't live your life without self-control, without self-control. Sexual immorality and sensuality, what is that? Unrestrained lust. The lust of the flesh. Unrestrained lust. We... We, you know, we're not trying to restrain ourselves. We, we lust after something and we go after it. There's just, there's no, there's no restraint for it. Dissension and jealousy, that's, that's the one there that's singular, and that one points to the attitude of man. It points to the attitude of man. And what does that, what does that do? Uh, it, it, or what does it indicate? It, it's, it indicates a determination to have one's way. That's what that is. I'm going to get my way, and I am determined to do so. I am jealous of what he has. I am jealous of what they have. I'm going to do this. I'm going to quarrel with people. I, you're, already, you're already bent on getting your way. And so Paul says, don't live that way. And in verse 14, he says something very interesting. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our protection. 
We live justified by Christ, but then through sanctification, the Holy Spirit walks that out, or, or he, he walks, he, we walk through sanctification with the Holy Spirit in this life. And, and then he says this, he says, but, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify the desires. And when I read that, it just struck me a little differently this time because it really points to the evilness of, of, of or to the evil within man's heart. It points to our brokenness. I mean, he's saying here, he says, do not make provision for it and to gratify the desires. A few commentaries that I, that I read, they said that this is a challenge to uh, not plan out your sin. Think about that. There's times that, that, that we are thinking about a sin, and not only do we think about that sin or are tempted with that sin, but then in our evil, in our brokenness, we start even plotting out how we are going to accomplish the sin. Make no provision for it, Paul says. Give no room to it, to the thought. Kick it off your porch. Get rid of it. Give it no time. Give it no moment in your mind to even begin to conceive the action of sin. Get rid of it. Get it out. But so many of us, we do this. We even think of ways to provide a moment and an opportunity for us to go and commit the sin. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Think of the many conversations you've had with yourself when you're angry. Oh, when I see this person, I'm going to say this, 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 and this. And you know inside of you it's wrong, but we still do it. You know, the saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Think about what that's already planting in our minds. We begin to make provision to gratify the flesh. And Paul is challenging us not to. So we're looking at this context and we're saying, okay, we know that we should love others freely and we know that we should do these things because our complete salvation is nearer now than it was the first day we were saved. But why should I do that? Why are these things important? And church, I have to point you to him. I have to point you to Christ. I have to point you to the life that he lived and the manner with which he lived his life, knowing the plan and knowing what was to come. Jesus never for one moment, never gave room for sin in his life. Yes, he was tempted, but he immediately, he immediately quoted scripture and rebuked, and, and, and rebuked Satan and the sin and the temptation. Not only that, but Jesus, guys, listen, Jesus was willing to love beyond what any one of us are ever willing to do. He was willing to pay your debt so that you could experience a free love. He was willing to take the weight of your sin on him on that cross, even though he didn't deserve it. This wasn't his debt. He didn't know anything. He wasn't obligated by anything to do it. He didn't do it because he owed it to us. He did it because he wanted to. And he freely gave himself 
on the cross so that we might have what we have today so that broken people like you and me and like so many others in this community could come to know that there is a God that loved them and loves them even now. That just like in my life, God found me in my sin, he can do that for anyone else. But Christ did all this with, he, he paid our debt. He didn't have the sin debt. He lived the perfect life. He didn't have to go to the cross. He was the perfect example of what the law is and what the law says. He came to fulfill the law. And in doing so, he took on our debt and our discipline in our place. took on the wrath of the Father. So that when God looks on you and me, he doesn't see our sins. He doesn't see our faults. But he sees that selfless life that Christ lived on this earth. Even knowing that one day He'd take the prize for you and me. As Christ drew closer and closer to the day, he became vigilant. He called his disciples, he called three of them to go and pray with him in Gethsemane because he knew the moment was hard. He knew the moment was tough. Knowing that the day was coming, he didn't get laxed. He didn't become forgetful. He knew exactly what he needed to accomplish and he knew that it wouldn't be easy. Not only would he go into prayer, but he would ask his disciples to pray for him. Pray with me, for the hour draws near. And it was Paul's conviction in mind that that's how we should live these, this dawning of a new day. That we too should be vigilant that we too should be in prayer, that we too should be in community, lifting each other up and not tearing each other down. That we too should be helping one another to be an example of what Christ was here in this world, to give without, without owing, to love without being obligated to. Can you imagine a church that could live in this way? Can you imagine a church that would choose to love its neighbor instead of hate? A church that instead of, that, that instead of being set in getting its way, it's set on getting God's way. It's set on, on preaching the gospel and spreading the gospel to those that are in need. It's set on giving of oneself to disciple each other, to grow together. That is the example that we see throughout the New Testament in the New Testament church. 
selfless, giving, discipleship, servanthood. It wasn't about me. It was about the will of God and it was about the word. It was about the gospel. And it was about the lives that were in need of it. So can you imagine a church that lived in light of this truth? That instead of saying, I only love you because I have to, because we're part of the same church, I'm gonna love you because God even loved me in the worst of my, my life, in the worst of my sin. Instead of looking at it as an obligation, let's look at it as an opportunity to change life, to impact a life. Let's pray.